the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us on this installment. Pleased to have you with us. Again, follow the show at danproftshow.com, as always. Podcast there as they are on Spotify and iTunes at Dan Proft Show on all the social media platforms or at Dan Proft too, either one, both. We begin on this program talking about K through twelve education. We're going to continue talking about it because, of course, it impacts tens of millions of Americans' lives, families, uh, the adults and kids alike. And uh, we start by noting, according to a recent Ipsos survey, eighty percent of Democrats oppose school reopening. 80% of Republicans support school reopenings. Isn't that odd? I mean, how can something that's supposed to be uh, science and data-driven have such disparity, particularly when the uh, science and data is decidedly in one direction? When the experts, a uh, survey of pediatricians on, uh, on, on MSNBC, even the CDC and Dr. Tony Fauci promulgating the protocols for reopening are all in the reopening camp. They're all in the I feel comfortable sending my kids to school camp. The Centers for Disease Control's most recent report, 12 pediatric COVID deaths total compared to 174 pediatric flu deaths this season. 12 to 174. We're not shutting down schools because of pediatric flu. And yet it's uh, 16 times plus the numbers of fatalities. In 2018-2019 flu season, there were 400 pediatric deaths. In the 2009 swine flu pandemic, 2,000 children died from swine flu. Twelve so far pediatric COVID-19 deaths in America, and we shut down the schools. Those other viruses were contagious as well, and uh, clearly more contagious among the young than COVID-19 has turned out to be. And yet the schools are shut down. I suppose it, uh, in part, is a reflection on your philosophy about society in general, in addition to education in particular. And who you're listening to, who drives your understanding of information that is being batted around in the public arena. Uh, I've said before, one of the things this show prides itself on is institutional memory that you can find in few other places, few other media outlets. So let's walk back to 2016 and frame our discussion here with a comment from uh, then MSNBC host Melissa Harris Perry, one of the many tax scofflaws employed by MSNBC. Anyway, uh, her discussion of education. And what we've gotten wrong with respect to education for so long, what we need to get right. We have never invested as much in public education as we should have because we've always had kind of a private notion of children. Your kid is yours and totally your responsibility. We haven't had a very collective notion of these are our children. So part of it is we have to break through our kind of private idea that kids belong to their parents or kids belong to their families and recognize that kids belong to whole communities. Once it's everybody's responsibility and not just the households, then we start making better investments. Uh Uh-huh. You have to cede authority over your children to the state. 
uh, and the state in the form of the administrators and teachers in your school district. And that's exactly what's happened. Just as we've ceded more and more of our lives as Americans to the whims of experts, the opinions of experts, even if well-intended, even when well-founded. It's not a situation where we're gathering information so we can make informed decisions for ourselves. It's we are being herded into the direction the experts tell us we must move. We've done that across a range of human activity. And now, well, and we had been doing it with respect to K through 12 education for some time. And now it's just expressing itself in the most damaging possible form when it comes to deferring. This is what we have, a culture of deference, deferring to the experts, the administrators and the teachers in the local school district as to whether or not they should reopen, even if I want my kids back in school, even if I understand that that's the best environment for them to learn and grow socially as well as intellectually. We'll talk about the positive uh, management of this situation with uh, Emory University English professor Mark Bauerlein in the next hour. But I, I want to talk sort of philosophically about what's going on through a, a bit of a, of a sociopolitical lens. Defer, defer, defer. Somebody makes a claim based identity, I defer. Somebody uh, makes a claim from a position of perceived expert status, then I defer. I cede control of my child to the point now where, as I said, even if I believe this is the right thing to do, when I have teachers saying, you know, I want to go back to school and teach, but I also want to live, then I ignore the science. I ignore real world experiences, the data that we have. This is not a laboratory experiment, as dozens of countries in the Western world have reopened schools. And of course, Sweden, as we well know, never shut theirs down. Despite that, I say, well, if uh, so-and-so in the school district or if the union representative doesn't think it's safe for the teachers, then I guess that's what we must do. Hmm. And so we have this. And by the way, very much like Black Lives Matter, position of the teachers unions couldn't be more transparent. This is not some clandestine operation that we have to unearth and and say, this is what's really happening. I mean, they put it out there in the public arena for mass consumption. It's that much more incredible that you can have parents consume the content on the website demandsafeschools.org, demandsafeschools.org, I'll tweet it out, can look at these demands, this is a teacher's union backside, and say, uh, yeah, that sounds reasonable. National Day of Resistance, August 3rd, here are the demands. No reopening of schools until the scientific data supports it. Police-free schools. All schools must be supported to function as community schools with adequate numbers of counselors and nurses and community parent outreach workers. Got to staff up the schools now. Safe conditions, including lower class sizes, PPE cleaning, testing, other key protocols, equitable access to online learning. What are the metrics by which you clear safe conditions, the class sizes, the PPE cleaning, testing, support for our communities and families, moratorium on evictions and foreclosures. This has to do with a safe learning environment, providing direct cash assistance to those who are not able to work or who are unemployed and other critical social needs. Moratorium on new charter or voucher programs and standardized testing, adequate and equitable funding through federal stimulus, massive infusion of federal money to support the reopening funded by taxing billionaires and Wall Street, equitable access to online learning. So nice they said it twice. Massive infusion of federal money. Is there a weights and measures expert at the uh, Kremlins, the teachers union Kremlins around the country that can provide a, a numerical translation of what massive constitutes, according to them. Chicago Teachers Union uh, reacting to you know, questioning these demands and how they relate exactly to the education of young people. They uh, suggest that anybody who believes these demands are unreasonable is unreasonable. Just uh, let the adults work this out. Sure. OK. 
the adults have been doing a bang up job. I mean, uh, the results speak for themselves in the Chicago public school system, don't they? And uh, in the meantime, the media, uh, D.C. Press Corps, New York Times, other outlets trying to uh, guilt trip people who have the means to create uh, co-ops or so-called pods to educate children who are you know, in a hybrid situation or online learning completely. Well, that's that's, you know, going to exacerbate inequity. Right. Yes, exactly. The policies you're choosing to not go back to school when the evidence of safety is overwhelming from real world experience. uh, Well, in the entire Western world, what you're hearing from experts who aren't employee, who aren't members of a teacher's union. Yes, it's going to exacerbate inequities. Those with means to make sure their kid is still in the best learning environment for the kid. Uh, those kids are going to do better than the kids that are relegated to inferior learning environments. That's the decision the teachers union is foisting upon public school parents, not a decision the rich are foisting upon the poor. I mean, except for those who are rich because of their affiliation with Chicago, with uh, teachers unions in Chicago and every other big city in America. It's remarkable. They're exacerbating inequities while calling for equity. The, in fact, the logo for their demandsafeschools.org website uh, associated with the, and their, their August 3 day of resistance, the logo is hashtag ed equity or else, or else what? Ed equity or else, or else we shut it all down. How much different are the teachers union brass from the Robespierre's on the streets engaged in violence at equity or else you accede to our demands or else we burn it down or else your kids don't go to school. And who does that disproportionately affect? Of course, people with lesser means than others, the people who don't have choice, which is why, by the way, it's so important that uh, Republicans hold fast on the provision of their phase four relief proposal that includes uh, 10 percent of the 105 billion earmarked to help schools reopen, most going towards meeting CDC guidelines for social distancing. Ten percent of that money set aside for parents to pay for private school, charter school or homeschooling options, including the so-called pods or co-ops, as much as ten thousand dollars per child. Will Republicans walk away the Trump administration, walk away from that provision the way they walked away from a payroll tax cut? They better not. They better not. If you want to draw bright lines between who is in charge of your kids from the perspective of the respective political parties. And who is going to provide aid and relief to ensure your kids don't fall behind in a time when the teachers unions are trying to ensure that they do. Coming up, we'll continue our discussion on that piece of it, the phase four covid relief proposal from Republicans. We'll talk to Jim Urio, CNBC contributor, get his feedback on the market reaction to that proposal. That's coming up. Down on Main Street. Listen to podcasts of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. So, uh, Republicans, uh, unveiled their uh, phase four COVID aid package yesterday, as anticipated, 200 a week supplemental unemployment insurance to replace, combined with state benefits to replace 70 percent of previous wages as wages for the unemployed. Democrats have proposed keeping the $600 a week supplement. Of course, they have paying 
millions of people more to work to not work than to work. That seems to be a rather curious approach to trying to get people back to work is to pay them not to work. But that's me. You know, I, I don't know. It seems pretty straightforward. But again, that's me. Despite conceding the payroll tax cut, what was Nancy Pelosi's reaction to it? They're not serious. <laughs> you think you gained something. I mean, I know that's just posturing on her part. It doesn't matter. They could have pr- proposed the identical uh, legislation to the House Democrats and Nancy Pelosi would have still said they're not serious. And because it's reflexive, you have to take that position if you're a Marxist like Pelosi. But uh, there is uh, no plaudits coming from really any direction, maybe with the exception of establishment Republicans. And that is a pretty small constituency. For more on this and its uh, impact on the markets and uh, recovery against the backdrop of the ongoing COVID-19 whack-a-mole state by state, we're pleased to be joined again by Jim Urio, CNBC contributor and the owner of Brands and Palatine. Uh, well, uh, Jim, is a uh, trillion dollars we're going to throw onto the pyre here as proposed by the Trump administration? Is that going to have any particular effect? Here's what the markets seem to be telling us is that it's fine. It's nothing special. It's mm-hmm. nothing not special. You know, both the S&P and the Nasdaq taking stride. The dollar was absolutely getting pummeled over the last few days, and gold and silver have been rallying hard. And to me, that was an indication that the markets are telling us that the things that the government is doing, whether it be the Fed zeroing out interest rates to from now till forever and then buying every different security, and the federal government spending trillions every week had limitations, and those limitations were going to show up in currency. By the way, the dollar losing a few percent is a big deal, but it's not a huge precursor to some cataclysmic currency event yet. I mean, as long as the dollar stays above 90, I think it seems reasonable. Just to get back to your question, the dollar is telling us that what's happening regarding stimulus is not too hot and it's not too cold at the moment. If anything, it's probably running a little hot. Well, and it's, uh, you know, we're going to throw another round of $1,200 checks out into the hustings, at least according to the GOP proposal. And and again, I mentioned this yesterday. This just really, really sticks to me, uh, which is Mnuchin saying that the $1,200 check is even better than a payroll tax cut because it gets into people's hands faster, essentially making the two equivalent, if not a transfer payment from the government, better than a reduction in the government's burden on a business. He's equating it's, it, the two. It's crazy. And we're a couple months away from an election. How generous they all get. I just don't understand. It doesn't even seem like they care about what's for the greater good. I'm much more comfortable bashing the Democrats, but well, there's plenty to go around. Let's bash Republicans too. They're just wrong about that. You have to provide incentives for people to work or they won't work. I mean, we know that to be true. There's no great mystery here. That It's just asinine. On uh, the uh, monetary side of the House, uh, we have a new development. Jerome Powell and his uh, toolbox The Fed talking about directly setting interest rates by edict for the first time in uh, about 70 years. They've experimented with just say you're using rhetoric. This came about about, you know, six, seven years ago at the Jackson Hole Conference where they started experimenting with just saying we're going to keep interest rates this for the next two years. And then immediately the traders and the market does their work for them and zeroes out interest rates. So anytime they're talking about an edict, they're talking about just adding a little bit to the fire. But again, what do they even need that for? They, if you look at the 10-year yields, they're the ones who are buying 10 years out, and they've successfully just completely grounded the 10-year yield to between 0.6 and 0.7. Even if we see inflation, like this is the thing that should be amazing, and I don't think people are talking about it as much. Gold and silver are flashing us potential inflation. The dollar is getting pummeled, and the 10-year just stays absolutely stuck in this range because it's the equilibrium of the Treasury selling and the Fed buying. 
and nothing else seems to matter. So, so they've zeroed out rates along the way, and they've proven that they can do that for a while. I, I mean, I hate to see when that runs out. So then you have people betting against the Fed rather than betting on the market or against the market. And so interest rates don't tell you anything about the economy. They just tell you about Fed policy. And any time that the Fed gets in the way of normal market activity, over time, that eventually blows up. And we've seen that now twice in our adult lifetime, once with tech stocks, once with um, real estate, when they interfere with the normal market and they inflate bubbles. I've heard people refer to this as the everything bubble, and I kind of tend to agree, although the everything bubble, I'm not sure how that pops because it tends to be what we've seen before is people start to really extend themselves in one asset class. And when that implodes, it drags everything else down. But if you look at what's happened realistically for 10 years, but more importantly, since you know, the pandemic broke, this rally in stocks is 80% about free money that's been thrown at this problem, but not just domestically, but the world central banks keep throwing money at the problem and we keep being the clean of shirt, whatever that expression is. So they are interfering with normal market activity. And when that explodes, I always picture it like a spring, just coiling and coiling tighter. And when it explodes, it explodes poorly. Because the question has never been, should they have been aggressive during this time period? Because the answer to that is yes. But as we start to get by it, will they move back and their tendency is no. So let's just back up a step and do a, a little econ 101 for those less steeped in the market. And you're sort of getting to it, but but I want you to be explicit starting from the, the base, which is why does the world need a, a market price for the 10-year treasury yield rather than a, a Fed price? Well, there's two reasons. The reason the Fed comes in and collapses interest rates the whole way out is because one, they want to encourage people to borrow and spend, particularly businesses, but two, and this is the slightly more nefarious, they want to take away any sort of safe rate that people can invest their money in to encourage people to invest a little bit because if you can't get any money in tenure, what's the point of putting in tenure? And realistically, I wouldn't own a restaurant if there was a market price for regular yields for the last 20 years. There's no place to get your money, so you start to look to be more creative. So, so it works in some way. But what it tends to do is people start to increasingly riskier and riskier as they get sick of not getting any government safe yield. And then when once everybody's on board and everybody's uh, borrowed up to get into whatever the riskiest asset is, that's the way that's when it implodes. And that's what happened in the real estate market. And that's what happened in the tech stock market. And it's ugly when it happens, as we've seen. Uh, I wanted to get your reaction to uh, this development as well. See how we could uh, take advantage of this uh, marketplace. Online porn viewing in Washington, dormant since uh, most offices closed in March, has uh, spiked. According to the popular website StripChat, which I know you're familiar with, uh, weekly users have gone from about 3,000 inside the Beltway during the shutdown to about 55,000 now. Online porn viewing among uh, federal employees and others in D.C. up uh, 1,600%. Uh, That seems to be a growth industry. Uh, Is that, that something you want to take a long position on? Uh, Jim. Absolutely. By the way, addiction. Can we change it to addiction to make it more yeah. of a family show? Well, yeah, we, but, we can. No, but yeah, I guess the porn part of it is a lot more fun. The point of it is this, and there's a really, you know, a simple market premise that comes from this, and that's if you create this situation that we've created, particularly with lockdowns and things, you drive people to emotional problems and people look to self-medicate. And that's why you see it. You see it in a lot of different things. And porn is up there. Porn, I, I imagine, is highly addictive. The reality of this is people tend to self-medicate. We all know people who have these personalities. It's more than not, unfortunately. And it's an enormous thing. And it goes in that column of how stupid and poorly done 
the lockdowns were. He is Jim Urio, <laughs> CNBC contributor and proprietor of Brands in scenic Palatine, Illinois. Jim, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me again. Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back. Following our discussion on school reopenings and the Republican proposal for phase four COVID relief, uh, we now turn to electoral politics straight away. And a question that was posed by James Pogue, who's a journalist and essayist for Harper's, also the author of Chosen Country, A Rebellion in the West. Question he posed in this piece in Harper's Magazine, The Art of Losing is the name of the piece. Can Democrats win back the post-industrial America? Do they even need to? I don't know. From some of these outlets, uh, Josh Crosshair and National Journal, tsunami warning for Republicans. The Cook Report declared Democrats favored to win back the Senate in addition to the lead that Biden has opened up nationally, which, of course, means nothing. But it's not usually reported by the press like that. Uh, but even the lead he has in in swing states. Uh, this is a fait accompli. Uh, run through a couple debates and uh, anoint Biden president, it would seem, based on some of this reporting, particularly from left-leaning outlets. Team Trump's mounting fear his base will abandon him in the Daily Beast. I don't know if the Daily Beast quite has their finger on the pulse of Trump base camp, but okay. Maybe that question, can Democrats win back post-industrial America, is a salient one come November 3rd. Maybe uh, the victory or defeat of President Trump will once again run through the post-industrial Midwest, the places like Kenosha, Wisconsin, which is where our author spent a month trying to get a handle on what the 2020 uh, what the 2020 election may bring and on the, the basis on which it may arrive for more on this pleased to be joined by the aforesaid author James Pogue journalist essayist author of Chosen Country a rebellion in the West James thanks for being with us appreciate it hey thanks for having me appreciate it so uh, the assignment Kenosha uh, you write uh, you weren't necessarily ecstatic to uh, get the assignment at the outset but um, it seemed like from reading this expansive piece you had uh, quite a good time and met a lot of interesting people and 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 I wonder um, I, I I got what your perspective is is going out and we'll get to that. But what was your perspective going in about Kenosha, Wisconsin and, and, and about the Midwest, the post-industrial Midwest generally as somebody from the Midwest, actually? Yes, I'm from Cincinnati. Right. And so I've read a million of these pieces that are like somebody flies in, which, of course, I was flying in. But you have somebody fly into my home state of Ohio, for example, and you have somebody sort of talk to a few people in bars, talk to a few people in social clubs and explain to them, you know, basically why their state turned to Trump. And fundamentally, we wanted to do a kind of different project. We wanted to figure out, you know, what are the actual political mechanisms behind, you know, getting somebody enthusiastic about a candidate? What are what are the actual social social fabrics that are people responding to on a very local level, right? And so we chose Kenosha because Wisconsin turned out to be the real pivot state, and it may end up being the real pivot state next year, um, or this year, excuse me. And because it had a sort of, southeastern Wisconsin has a very sort of classic profile of a place where people turned to Trump very surprisingly, because there are union households, a lot of them, who, you know, sort of swore that they'd never vote for a Republican, and all of a sudden they were. 
Uh, although, I mean, obviously, Kenosha was represented for by Paul Ryan for some time, too. But, I mean, your, your point is well taken. And you spend some time in your piece uh, getting a handle on the uh, union perspective. And, and by union, we're talking about private sector unions, UAW and, and those types of unions. And what is it? Uh, what, what, what did some of those union workers who went to Trump because he was going to take on China? He was very critical of some of the trade deals, most specifically NAFTA. Uh, what's their handle on Trump and the job he's done with respect to some of the outsourcing and offshoring of American jobs from places like Kenosha three years in? You know, I would actually push back on that a little bit. I didn't really meet anybody who voted for Trump because they thought he was going to take on China. I didn't meet anybody who voted for Trump because they thought he was going to bring back a lost industrial glory. The people I met voted for Trump because they had sort of, in a much broader and honestly much deeper sense, lost a sense of participation in America, lost mm-hmm. a sense that there okay. was some kind of a feeling that, hey, this is like a place where we have civic buy-in. They had lost a sense that like, hey, like my kids are going to grow up in a community that they they're a real part of that has a social fabric and stuff like that. You know, and I've been to a lot of Trump rallies and I, you can probably guess my politics, but they also, they do have a certain energy that captivates people. Right. And a lot of people experienced that and felt like they were a part of something for the first time in our politics in a while. And so, that really enraptured. So, so was it, did you, would you, I mean, to try to, you know, sum, sum this in a pithy way. I mean, was it more the drain the swamp that was the appeal then? I honestly think it was the sense of like, I honestly think it was the Make America Great project. It was that somebody okay. said, hey, you're a part, you're on a team all of a sudden. Yeah. And people like the feeling of being on a team. That, no, that makes sense. Uh, that, that, that does make sense. I, obviously, that was the, the mantra and that's all the merchandising. But I mean, the, the emotive attachment that is connected to that sloganeering. That's really interesting, actually. It wasn't so much a specific issue. It was more sort of a, a, a feeling uh, of, uh, of teamwork or taking up their fight, uh, maybe a better way to describe it. When we come back, I want to uh, pick up on something you concluded from your time at Kenosha, which is that a return to normal may not be a winning message in November of 2020. More with James Pogue, journalist, essayist, author of Chosen Country, A Rebellion in the West, when we come back. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show Welcome back. We're talking about uh, the November election with James Pogue, who is a journalist, essayist and author of Chosen Country, A Rebellion in the West. He's got a couple of uh, expansive pieces in Harper's Magazine recently that are quite thought provoking and uh, challenges some of the conventional understanding of uh, what happened in 2016 and what may happen in 2020 and why, uh, including uh, some of what I was suggesting, uh, which was uh, which was interesting. Uh, One of the things you concluded, and I'll just read from your piece. Democrats picked a candidate who has promised to return the country to normal. That may end up being the most dangerous choice of all. And uh, your time in Kenosha, as we were discussing, you, uh, took you through the, the primary election in Wisconsin, Biden versus Sanders. The a return to normalcy. That seems the conventional wisdom is, you know, the Trump, if we vote for Biden, can we just all settle down and, and return to normalcy and be less uh, combative with one another again? And that's arguably, again, the conventional wisdom is that's part of the appeal of Joe Biden. And you're saying that may be a fool's gold. Yeah, I mean, I genuinely think that's the craziest vision of all in all of this. Like the idea that somehow we can reset the clock to 
to a world in which, you know, you know, an Obama era stasis where everybody was sort of still believed in the direction America was heading, still believed in, you know, the last 35 years of, of technocratic governance in this society. You know, one of the interesting things about Kenosha to me was just that it's a place where through trade, you have a very specific issue that illustrates something that I think a lot of people nationally feel, which is that we had this kind of technocratic centrist agreement that lasted maybe from the end of the Cold War until now, where people kind of bought into this idea, hey, there's one way to do government in this country. And that was blown open in 2016. And it turned out that a lot of people never really bought it. They were just sort of fed this line. And trying to put that back in a box, trying to tell people from Black Lives Matter to Trumpists to whoever you want to talk about, that all of a sudden, hey, we're back to an agreement in this country. Do you think that's going to work? I don't. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I think, uh, you know, in the the most salient issue of the day, of course, COVID-19 right now, but from many different perspectives, I don't think the experts have afforded themselves particularly well in the minds of a wide swath of Americans and thus these disagreements. Eighty percent of Republicans think we should reopen the schools. Eighty percent of Democrats think we shouldn't, according to one recent uh, Ipsos uh, survey. And and that speaks to a dynamic that goes well beyond, you know, an argument over one particular scientific study about the transmission of the virus. There, there's something more fundamental going on there. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, I hate to say it, but so Kenosha was interesting. Kenosha is one of these last places that, I, you know, I'm a political reporter. I visit a lot of places like it's one of the last places I've been that felt like it was genuinely sort of in the political center where people were genuinely persuadable one side or the other. Most of the country isn't like that. Most of the country is in off opposite camps that are not listening to each other. And fundamentally, whether you like it or not, there's going to be a sort of battle royale to decide which one wins. There isn't going to be some kind of coming together. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, the, you know, the, the visions are stark in some ways and not so stark in others. I mean, for example, on we, we were talking about earlier in the hour, the uh, COVID relief phase four relief package. I mean, both sides are very, very happy to uh, spend spend, uh, have government intervene in the economy. So, you know, there's not as much birth between the two sides on some of those issues as you would otherwise believe from some of the rhetoric. Well, especially when you're having upward wealth transfers, right? We, um, that's something that everybody can agree with is that the rich are getting richer. Um, and somehow that continues to be the one point of political agreement in this country. I wanted to get to, to this other piece you wrote, too, because okay, the one sort of folds into the others, this uh, piece in Harper's you wrote called Good Guys with Guns. And um, you write that you, you at some point you, uh, growing up, uh, you had some exposure to guns, but um, I hated gun culture. I'd spent my adult life reporting on paramilitary groups. I'd spent a lot of time learning about guns and talking to gun guys, but I found many of them to be pretty repellent. Even uh, so, as much as I hate to see the damage wreaked by guns in this country, there's still part of me that's glad to have grown up in a society that entrusts gun ownership to its people. You know, so you're sort of conflicted on the topic, which is interesting, but you come down on the side of private ownership of uh, of guns and the right to self-protection. So walk us through your, your thinking on that. You know, this may surprise people, and it surprised a certain number of people who read the piece who were, you know, maybe more right wing. But like, I'm pretty openly left wing, but I also believe that there's something very great about being in a country that lets a citizen, but that basically doesn't reserve the monopoly of violence for the state. And in this country, we allow private citizens to have the responsibility of basically serving as a check in the state and 
on their other citizens with firearms. And that's a scary responsibility. But it's like, if you were to take that away from me, I would feel like less of a complete person, honestly. And I think that that's how a lot of people who view guns see them is that there's something that they're a grave and very scary responsibility that people wouldn't necessarily want to give up after having grown up with it. That's how I feel. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of a, a the, the, the mo- one of the uh, more fundamental, along with the first freedoms and the, and the First Amendment, one of the more fundamental expressions of the idea that we're a republic based on the consent of the governed, uh, isn't it? Yeah, and that's exactly right. And, you know, I think people on the left can find that feeling. But, you know, there's a lot of stuff, you know, where people on the left feel like that sort of rhetoric of liberty and personal responsibility and all that stuff uh, is either outdated or it's like it was something we never should have really embraced at all. And to me, like, I just personally, I don't think there's anything unreconcilable about believing that, you know, hey, like maybe we should have health care, but also we can have personal responsibility. We can also have individual citizens be a check on the state and have the state exactly exist with the consent of the governed. Uh, you, you going back to Kenosha for a minute, just because of the uh, the temporal context, you uh, talk about uh, I, maybe you were leaving right uh, as the George Floyd killing happened and, and the, uh, the, the protesting and the rioting that resulted. I, I wonder if you got any sense of of, uh, how that was being processed by some of the people you talked to in Kenosha, as you suggested, being the swing area. Well, you know, that stuff is divisive in Kenosha just as it's divisive nationally. It's really tough because on the one hand, you know, you have you have this kind of like group of people who are die, die, die hard refusing to accept the certain valid points that a lot of the protests are making. On the other hand, you have this whole kind of like national conversation that can be really, really, you know, I'm a journalist. It can be really scary when you're a part of like this world where you have to adhere to certain ways of talking about the protests. You have to call them certain things. You have to call them peaceful or whatever. And like, you know, I think it's entered into this world where, again, talking about uh, talking about these divisions, it's really hard to see it's really hard to see how there's any consensus around what these are and how we're going to form a consensus around these things. Uh, And I find that really scary because I think that, again, at some point, some side is going to have to win this fight. He is James Pogue, journalist, essayist and author of Chosen Country, A Rebellion in the West. And uh, I'll tweet out his uh, pieces from Harper's Magazine that we've been discussing, including his time in Kenosha. James Pogue, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. The more you'll know, this is the Dan Proft Show. Sports and politics and sports and politics and sports and politics and intersection. Arrogance and ignorance, arrogance, ignorance and arrogance and ignorance. Intersection. Bob Costas was on with uh, Fredo Cuomo last night on the uh, question of do we need sports or do we want sports? We want sports. We don't need sports. I hope they can play baseball, but there are legitimate issues here. And when people said this will mark a return to normal, really, when you're getting reports like this, when you're watching a game and the manager comes out to the mound that he's wearing a mask and he has to socially distance and they've got a 100 plus page protocol. And it doesn't make sense to believe that every one of these young people will will adhere to those protocols on an ongoing basis, certainly not in baseball and football because they're not in a bubble. To me, it's a reminder every time you watch a game, even if you're even if you're enjoying it, of how abnormal 
circumstances are. Oh, there's no question they're abnormal, but not in the good way, which is what Bob Costas was conveying, the abundance of caution, the worst-case scenario kind of ridiculous way. It's uh, That's how Bob Costas is conveying. It's abnormal because we've lost our collective minds because we're worried about uh, 25-year-old professional athletes getting a, 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 a virus that is very like unlikely to do them any lasting damage whatsoever, and we're going to put uh, the entirety of sports on hold, like we're going to put the entirety of K-12 through education on hold, or generally speaking on hold, or some sort of bastardization of it, as Bob Costas was properly describing. But I'll tell you what, maybe, uh, I mean, I agree with him, we don't need sports. We need, what, what do people, it's like, what, what do people need is sort of like, what do they deserve? What do they need beyond, uh, you know, the essentials of life? The quality, the question is the quality of life. The uh, dynamism of the environment, your contributions to humanity, including in sports and the arts, these are not inconsequential. And I'm not suggesting that Casas thinks they are, but he's sort of dismissive of everything with respect to living a life in pursuit of the, the preservation of life at all costs, everything to save one life, which is a preposterous premise from which to start. And of course, both Fredo and Bob start from that premise. But I'll tell you what, I'm uh, getting more and more persuaded each day uh, when I read stories like HBO Sports will air Seeing America with Megan Rapino, where uh, she will uh, discuss uh, social issues with uh, three stooges, AOC, Nicole Hannah-Jones, and comedian Hassan Minaj. Well, that'll be deep thinking there. Uh, if we could uh, reduce the profile of dum-dums like Megan Rapino or, frankly, Bob Costas, uh, not to mention the LeBron Jameses and the Colin Kaepernicks of the world, reduce their cultural influence. I'll tell you what, I may be convinced to keep sports uh, shut down, locked down, eliminated altogether just to improve the quality of discourse in the public arena. Uh, I'm sort of, uh, you know, with the, maybe the, the, the Mike Ditka camp. Did you hear what Coach said on an on a interview in TMZ Sports? Asked about the whole kneeling thing. If you can't respect our national anthem, get the hell out of the country. Then that's the way I feel. Of course, I'm old-fashioned. You're old-fashioned. Not, not, not wrong. I mean, you could protest the flag and you could protest the national. I don't think you have to be exiled from the country. I don't think it was just what Coach is saying either. He's just basically saying, you know, you're an ingrate and it's uh, the inappropriate time and you're making a spectacle of yourselves and you should be embarrassed and you shouldn't be taken seriously, perhaps. That'd be a good start. This is Dan Bob. From the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Follow us at danprofshow.com or you get podcasts, social media at danproft and or at danprofshow. A uh, good piece in the Wall Street Journal about uh, that uh, remote working paradigm. Uh, companies uh, that uh, thought remote working would be the future and uh, perhaps they could uh, shrink the office space footprint they now finance. Now thinking maybe that uh, fear-driven productivity isn't sustainable. As the uh, work-from-home experiment stretches on, some cracks are starting to emerge. Projects take longer. Training is tougher. Hiring and integrating new employees more complicated, uh, per this Wall Street Journal piece. And uh, some employers say their workers appear less connected, and bosses fear that younger professionals aren't developing at the same rate they would in offices, sitting next to colleagues and absorbing how they do their jobs. Context environment matters. Interesting. Who would have thunk it? 
And that's certainly the case with respect to children's education as well. But I thought the, the, the comparison, we've talked a lot about schools and we're going to continue uh, in children's education, but also productivity in the professional world. That's also all the, the fanfare about remote working and the end of commercial office space. Not so fast. Environment matters, including for adults. If it matters for adults, it certainly matters for kids, doesn't it? And that's the subject of a very good piece in First Things, firstthings.com, by our friend Mark Bauerlein, who's an English professor at Emory University and senior editor of First Things. Mark, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Hi, Dan. I'm glad to join you. Uh, the, uh, the environment, uh, that's the topic you tackle with your piece and uh, the problem with online learning, uh, starting with a tool and extending into, uh, you know, kids' office space if they're going to be learning from home. Why don't we start with the tool by which they will learn uh, when they're learning online? Well, they're, they're all going to be in their rooms. Uh, if they aren't in school, they'll be remote, distance learning, and they'll be doing it all through the screen. And they're all going to have their laptops or their tablets open. Uh, many of them will do, be doing it by cell phone. And the first thing to remember about this learning tool is that for the kids, it is primarily not a learning tool. It's the tool through which they send photos, they chat, they play video games. They do all kinds of things that Silicon Valley has invented for them, and it's invented for them with these kids' emotional and biochemical brain chemistry in mind in order to keep them sticked, stuck on those tools. And now, suddenly, they're supposed to look at this tool that years of conditioning have led them to believe is a means of diversion, entertainment, competition, and communication with their peers. Now, it's going to be a learning tool. It's going to be all academics. And do, do we really believe that, that that is going to work very well? Well, and in point of fact, uh, some of the initial returns, the research that was conducted about how it worked this past spring from Brown University, from Washington's, uh, Washington University's IHME, from a Reuters uh, review, finds that it didn't work very well at all, uh, both in terms of participation and connected to that in terms of actual progression with respect to reading and math achievement. Do we really expect that a 13-year-old boy who has spent an hour with his buddies doing Fortnite, and they're all in the game together, and it's intense, it's competitive, it's treacherous, and suddenly now it's time to do our homework, let's shift. We know the teenage mind, the child mind doesn't work that way. They can't just turn it off and go and read about the, the French Revolution or the Roman Empire? No. I mean, the, the old textbook had one purpose, and it was an academic purpose. When you open that textbook, the entire world of that textbook was geared toward academic content. When they lift that screen to learn about the Roman Empire, they've got videos there, they've got chat, they've got photos and Instagram, they have Twitter, all kinds of things that they can do. And those things are drawing them. They're working on these kids' emotional parts and, and intellectual minds. And they are directly influencing them not toward that slow learning process, most of which is pretty slow. They want the fast excitement of social contact and, and YouTube videos. That's what's going to matter for them. And remember, the bedroom used to be a private space. 
the kid, go to your room, you're grounded. That doesn't work anymore. You go to the, they go to their room, they shut the door, and they turn that bedroom into a social space. They shut out their parents down the hall, and they open up to the rest of the world, the youth world that they're all connected to. Now, what's going to happen is those parents who are diligent, careful, they, make the, they get the computer out of the room and into the family room where they can exercise some control. Those parents are already have an advantage over the parents of a single-parent household, mothers working, or two-parent household. That they don't have that much money, and or they're not just very attentive parents. They plunk their kids in front of the TV. That gap shows up very clearly all the time. That gap is going to grow. The online situation is going to aggravate the differences between the kids with the responsible parents, the careful parents, and the kids whose parents are, are even if they're well-intentioned, they just don't have the time or energy. Not, not, to, to, me- not to mention the, uh, the divide between kids that uh, are in private schools that are going to be in school five days a week with, in, with uh, in-school learning versus those even in good public schools that are going to be uh, in a hybrid situation or completely learning online. Absolutely. And this is going to show up, Dan. Next year, it's going to show up on test scores. We may see, we're going to see a drop, that's inevitable, but the drop will be smaller the more you go up the income ladder into the private schools, and the more you go down, you'll see a bigger drop. So the educators, the teachers who are always talking about inequity and, and injustice, keeping the kids too much at home is going to increase the inequality that they lament. I got an so idea, loudly. though. I got an idea to, to fix the drop in test scores. We'll just eliminate the tests. How about that? You don't like the message? Kill the messenger. There you go. Um, well, you have uh, some uh, advice and counsel for parents to t- who uh, you know need to keep their kids in the school they're in, and uh, that school is going to be uh, at least partially online learning. An approach they should take to that 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 uh, paradigm for maximum benefit to their kid. Give us a couple of examples of what you recommend. The, the key is to have your kids do as much as the academic work required away from the screen. Have them do it away from the screen. When they have to write a short paper, have them write it by hand first, then type it into the, the computer and send it off to their teachers. When they have to read things, don't read online versions. Read them in print versions. The less screen time you can give them as they build up their, their work, the better. And no, try to reproduce the school day in terms of interruptions. Don't, when, if there's a 10-minute break between classes, don't let them jump onto Instagram. Don't let them uh, do, do Twitter, whatever, social media. Don't let them play a game. Keep it out Try and reproduce the normal school day as much as you can at home. And it's going to be hard. Parents are going to have to push on this because that screen is a lure. It's a temptation. It, it, is, it is an addiction for many, many kids. And Silicon Valley wanted it that way. Hmm. And, uh, uh, you, you know, you give sort of the profile of the, uh, the single mom uh, or even uh, an intact family that's got uh, mom and dad work and they're trying to manipulate everybody's schedules to make sure that they're at home as much as possible to oversee the kids' schooling. 
and uh, you know, and just just how difficult uh, that that change in life is and uh, of course to happen so suddenly with frankly a few weeks to school and still a lot of schools not really communicating clearly what they're going to do and i i don't i think we're going to see more chaos because of this i think that when when the school year begins <clears throat> weeks go by uh that people's lives the the disruption is going to continue and as the school year goes in the parents aren't going to get that space anymore and I mean, added to everything else, it's going to be a wild and crazy fall leading up to November 3rd. <laughs> and I don't know what's going to happen on November 4th if Donald Trump wins again. He is Mark Bauerlein. He's an English professor at Emory University, senior editor at First Things, firstthings.com. Uh, check out his piece, which I will tweet out the problem with online learning, which has some good tips for parents trying to cope with these uh, situations we were describing with K through 12 education. Professor Bauerlein, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Coming up next, we're going to switch gears and talk about uh, appeasement versus the rule of law with NRO's Andy McCarthy, former federal prosecutor. That's uh, coming up right after this. I got my mind Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Since uh, Portland is getting so much attention, I found this interview done by uh, Jeff Reynolds. Over at PJ Media, interesting, he interviewed a, a gentleman named Gabe Johnson, 48-year-old black man who served in the Marines, who uh, was a, uh, inclined to be positive about the protesters in Portland. Now says Portland police should use any means necessary, including force to sweep the riots off the I'm sorry, I used the, word, the R word. It's a peaceful demonstration intensified. According to the Associated Press, I want to maintain AP style here to sweep the uh, peaceful demonstrations intensified off the streets and end the nightly violence. He said, um, you know, when he first heard about uh, Antifa and some of the rhetoric about Antifa, I thought it was a bit overblown. I was thinking that maybe they're just, you know, some punk kids or whatever. It was some righteous anger in there. I quickly found out that was not the case. Uh, Johnson, Gabe Johnson, no fan of Donald Trump, not conservative, considers himself a moderate. But he also considers himself a patriot who's tired of watching America come apart at the seams. It's beyond me how they can sit there and say they're not causing damage or rioting. It's a riot and it's real. And when you are on the front line and you're looking back into that crowd, it's an angry mob that is built on doing as much destruction as possible. He uh, also uh, relayed from his firsthand experience. Uh, something we've reported. Unfortunately, 90% of the people don't look like me, but 99% of the people that I talk to don't even live in Portland. If you're down here at one of these movements or one of these protests, one of these things you're going to notice is there's a lot of out of state license plates. People are very brazen about the fact that, no, they're not from here. Well, and this is the issue of organized crime in the conversation we began yesterday talking about uh, 
the application of RICO and and the references that Attorney General Barr has made to prosecuting uh, individuals and or organizations that are involved in organized crime, organized criminal activity. It doesn't need to be, uh, you know, mob style racketeering, a numbers racket. It can also be organized crime in terms of violence on the streets of America, which is why Lori Lightfoot and these big city mayors posture toward federal law enforcement is so fascinating. One, they are projecting the appearance of control that they don't have. And two is they should be worried about, obviously, the people committing acts of violence in their cities, not about federal law enforcement that is here to help interdict the violence. We will not allow federal troops in our city. We will not tolerate unnamed agents taking people off the street, violating their rights um, and holding them in custody. That's not happening here in Chicago. So I've drawn a very, very bright line. I've made that very clear to every federal authority um, that I've spoken with, and they understand that if they cross that line, we will not hesitate to use every tool at our disposal to stop troops uh, and unwanted agents in our city. That that was Lightfoot on Jake Tapper with Jake Tapper on Say the Union on Sunday. Yeah, the what is she, exactly she going to do? Uh, to uh, stop Customs and Border Patrol uh, agents or FBI, ATF, DEA. Uh, For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Andy McCarthy. He's a former chief assistant U.S. attorney in Manhattan, contributing editor at National Review, author of the bestseller, Ball of Collusion, The Plot to Rig an Election and Destroy a Presidency. And I should add one other thing, uh, per Rich Lowry over at National Review, uh, the accusation that that's what's happening in Portland un you know, unmarked officers and unmarked cars. They're just pulling people off the streets willy nilly for no good reason. Uh, Rich Lowry did a good uh, piece in National Review the other day documenting that that is not the case either. So another misdirection by leftist mayors. So um, Lori Lightfoot is uh, drawing bright lines for federal law enforcement mm-hmm. officers and agencies, and they know that if they cross the lines that she's drawn, that uh, she brings out the toolbox. Yeah, well, I wanted to make it clear. I am not going to permit there to be a total eclipse of the sun today. No matter what happens, that is not happening. Now, on my watch, I am not permitting that. Mm-hmm. No mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I have about as much control over that as she has over what she claims to have uh, have control over. And it's about as much a part of reality as what she's Describing, I mean, the idea that she's not going to permit something that isn't happening and has no prospect of happening may fool some people. But I hope people are seeing through that. But, you know, the, the Trump administration is not sending troops anyplace, uh, even in Portland, where a federal facility is under attack and where I think they ought to be charging them with uh, conspiracy to make war on the United States, which is a crime I used against terrorists in the 1990s, uh, those are federal law enforcement agents. They're from the Department of Homeland Security, but DHS is this is this big, sprawling uh, department that after the 9-11 attacks, when they restructured the government, ended up as kind of the housing for a bunch of federal law enforcement agencies that weren't a perfect fit for the Justice Department. So they have things like... Uh, 
you know, Secret Service, Customs and Border Patrol, ICE, and the Federal Protective Service, which are the, is the police that you encounter uh, when you go inside a federal courthouse. Those are all law enforcement agents. They're not troops. Uh, they are in heavy gear because they're under attack, because people are firebombing the courthouse with people inside of it. Uh, and and on, in the second uh, tranche of federal law enforcement that we're talking about, as, as Amy just uh, referred to, uh, the people who are being sent to the cities like Chicago are agents of agencies that are already working in existing federal state task forces that exist between Chicago and the federal government, just like they do with New York and Los Angeles and uh, a lot of the cities across the country. So you're talking about, you know, FBI and DEA agents who work uh, particular kinds of violent and gang crime cases, uh, ballistics experts from uh, ATF, the U.S. Marshal Service, which is good at, at tracking down uh, fugitives, uh, that sort of stuff. Those agents are going into existing task forces that combat gang crime, violent crime, drug crime, organized crime. And the idea is to beef up the federal presence and to give the states and the city federal funding so that they can contribute more state police and city police to these existing task forces so you can do more cases and have more of an impact on people's lives in the street where where you have all this kinds of uh, kind of spiking violence so any you would think that anyone would would welcome that i i just uh, it's mind-boggling when we come back with the national reviews andy mccarthy i want to pick up uh on our conversation about federal troop presence and uh, also get your take on the Bloomberg editorial arguing that federal law enforcement is doing more harm than good in places like Portland, Memorial County, McCarthy. Salem Radio Network. We're back with NRO's Andy McCarthy, former federal prosecutor, and uh, I wanted to get to this Bloomberg editorial, uh, and uh, you can throw in Nick Kristoff from the New York Times as well, editorializing against federal law enforcement presence, federal law enforcement presence in Portland, saying they're doing more harm than good. We have a whole culture here in big cities and in big media of appeasement as the strategy to deal with the mob. It's remarkable to me from Lori Lightfoot taking down the Columbus statues to appease the mob to uh, editorial boards opining against, yeah, remove the federal officers so that people are less upset. Well, I think if they remove the federal officers, we all know that the building would be destroyed. Yeah, but then they'd be happy <laughs> after that. That's a fact. So, but how is that better? Yeah, well, I, then we'll see. They're, what, not attack, we'll, they're not attacking the federal building because the agents are there. They were attacking the, the federal building. You know, there, there were always some agents in there. But the agents went there and they beefed up the presence of federal law enforcement agents there because they were attacking the building. Andy, you know, let's you, let them have the police precinct for a 
couple of weeks. Let them burn down a federal building here and there, and then they'll punch themselves out, and we'll have peace on the streets again. I guess we've gone a long way from broken windows. I guess. I guess. I guess guess so. Um, You know, I want to go back to the other side of of the justice system that you were referencing earlier, because I don't think it gets enough discussion, which is the prosecution side. And you talked about you would be moving charges of conspiracy to make war on America against these organized criminals in major cities. And I I was watching this uh, documentary on Netflix uh, called Fear City about the mob, which you know a lot about in the 70s and 80s in New York, and the insight that Rudy Giuliani had after the FBI was sort of briefed on the RICO statute and how to apply it to the mob to go after the heads of the five families, the so-called commission, and bring down the organizations in toto. And I wonder why we're not using RICO U.S. attorneys uh, around the country aren't using RICO, not just to deal with organized criminals that are fomenting the rioting and the violence, but also underlying that in cities like Chicago, where you have organized crime in the form of street gangs as part of the drug trafficking networks around the world, why there isn't more of a focus on trying to take the heads off of these organizations like was done in New York with respect to the mafia? I think the answer to that probably is that RICO... In my experience, and that's even, uh, you know, I had the privilege of being a prosecutor under Rudy in the uh, in the 1980s, and he really was a pioneer in how you use RICO. It was on the books uh, beginning in 1971, but Rudy had a much more creative and aggressive well, way of using it than had been used previously. But those cases take time to build, and they're not the, you know, they're not your first response. There's a lot of uh, kinds of crimes that are easier to prove than RICO. And the thing about RICO that makes it such a a great tool for prosecutors is you can prosecute these other crimes because the idea of RICO is that you belong to what the the law calls an enterprise, which is just any kind of association. It can be a very loose one or it can be even a legitimate organization. But it's an organization that basically earns money through crimes. And the innovation of RICO is that the target of the prosecution is not the underlying crimes. It's the organization you know, the entity. Right. So you can prosecute the underlying crimes as you build a RICO case against the top players. And that usually takes a little more time because they want RICO to be enforced the same way across the country because it's such an important tool to federal prosecutors. It doesn't stop you from, again, prosecuting the underlying crimes as you go along. And it usually takes more time to build a case against the more insulated high-ranking people in any organization. Oh, no, I understand. So I wouldn't be surprised, Dan, if that's going on Yeah, now. but but I mean, I, particularly the street gangs that, that you've been dealing with for a longer period of time in, in big cities, I just, you know, if you can get to the, the bosses of the five families, then you can get to the street gang leaders of established street gangs that are involved in drug trafficking that are responsible for the preponderance of the murders and violent crime in places like Chicago. And so, you know, these are these can be parallel tracks. And it just there's no indication that there is that parallel track. I, I, I mean, I, I again, I understand prosecutors don't advertise what they're doing, but but you just haven't seen any prosecution along these lines in years and years and years in Chicago and and other big cities that I'm aware of. Well, I think you'll start seeing them, but you may not see RICO prosecutors prosecutions first because the federal narcotics laws have very stiff penalties. So if you can actually prove a narcotics conspiracy, which is easier to prove than a racketeering enterprise, and especially if you can trace violent crimes to it, 
those people get very severe sentences. There ends up being no need to go the RICO route with those guys because, you, you know, you only live once. And right. the penalties that are involved in those cases are very severe. But, I mean, you but you want to take down the entire operation, right? It's not to, yep. it's not good enough to send Jeff Ford, yep. Peastone Rangers away. You want to take down the Peastone Rangers. Right, and you can. Yes. Well, that's helpful. Andy McCarthy, former chief assistant U.S. attorney, Southern District of Manhattan, contributing editor National Review and author of the bestseller, Ball of Collusion, The Plot to Rig an Election and Destroy a Presidency. Andy, thanks as always for joining us. Take care. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Pleased to have you with us and uh, Attorney General Barr testifying on the Hill today before the House Judiciary Committee which uh, features, among other notables, uh, Representative Hank Johnson from Georgia. Uh, Unfortunately, we did not find out whether or not Guam is currently in jeopardy of capsizing, which uh, Hank Johnson is sort of the uh, watchdog on that topic. But uh, we did have some spirited exchanges about violence in America's cities, and most notably uh, Portland because of the presence of federal law enforcement there. This is uh, how it started with uh, Jerry Nadler, who was uh, late arriving because apparently got into a bit of a a crack up. Uh, Thankfully, he was fine so that he could uh, have these um, illuminating exchanges with uh, Attorney General Barr, Jerry Nadler, Mr. Sardonicus. Your tenure has been marked by a persistent war against the department's professional corps in an apparent attempt to secure favors for the president. Others have lost sight of the importance of civil rights laws. But now we see the full force of the federal government brought to bear against citizens demonstrating for the advancement of their own civil rights. Now, recall that uh, according to uh, Mr. Sardonicus there, Jerry Nadler, uh, there is no such thing as Antifa. That's a myth. That's a myth that was created in Washington. Again, don't believe your eyes. Believe what you're told. This is the Orwellian America that Jerry Nadler would uh, have us live in. Barr responded about what's happening in Portland. Bit of uh, an alternative version of events. You won't be surprised to learn. Have you discussed the current or future deployment of federal law enforcement? Well, as I say, I'm not going to get into my discussions with the president, but I've made it clear that I would like to pick the cities based on law enforcement need and based on neutral criteria. So, but you, you can't tell me whether you discussed No, I'm not going to discuss what I discussed is protecting federal property and specifically U.S. courthouses, which are the heart of federal property in all 93 jurisdictions in the United States. And we have the obligation to to protect federal courts and the U.S. Marshals specifically have been given that obligation. Federal courts are under attack. Since when is it okay to try to burn down a federal court? If someone went down the street to the Prettyman Court here, that beautiful courthouse we have right at the bottom of the hill, and started breaking windows and firing industrial-grade fireworks in to start a fire, throw kerosene balloons in and, and start fires in the court, is that okay? Is that okay now? No, the U.S. Marshals have a duty to stop that and defend the courthouse, and that's what we are doing in Portland. We are at the courthouse defending the courthouse. We're not out looking for trouble. 
And uh, Representative Doug Collins, following up on that topic of defending the courthouse, Republican, uh, of course, from Georgia, Doug Collins, uh, <laughs> offering a bar a layup in terms of taking a little shot at the uh, august body that is the House Judiciary Committee. You made a comment just a second ago on these rights. Talking about the courthouses just down the street, what if they decided, do you think that this body right here would rise up if they decided to go tonight and paint the Capitol building? This body, I'm not sure. I think this side would. <laughs> would this body defend it? Uh, I have no idea what this body would do. And I love uh, Barr's uh, dry delivery of that response. Uh, perfect. Uh, something uh, else Nadler said that uh, ultimately came back around, Mike Johnson, Republican from Louisiana, uh, asking Barr about this notion that was made by Jerry Nadler that somehow Attorney General Barr is just the president's lawyer. He's not the people's lawyer. He's doing favors for Trump's friends, and he's uh, using the Department of Justice to persecute Trump enemies, when in point of fact all that is is projection onto A.G. Barr by Jerry Nadler and Democrat socialists as to what the previous administration did what House and Senate Democrat socialists have in mind for the Department of Justice and the entire apparatus of the state. The Democrats have asserted here this morning, and they continue to say in the media, that under your leadership, the Justice Department has become highly politicized. Why is that a totally unfounded allegation? Because actually what I've been trying to do is restore the rule of law. And the rule of law is, at essence, that we have one rule for everybody. If you apply one rule to A, the same rule applies to B. And I felt we didn't have that uh, previously at the department. We had strayed. And uh, I would just ask people, uh, I'm supposedly uh, punishing the president's enemies and helping his friends. What enemies have I indicted? Who, who, could you point to one indictment that has been under the department that you feel is, is unmerited, that you feel violates the rule of law? One indictment. Yeah, we're still waiting for an answer to that uh, query from Attorney General Barr. And again, just uh, recounting the backdrop, uh, protesters gathering outside the juvenile court and detention facility in Seattle, setting fire to portable trailers, smashing the windows of nearby cars and businesses. Portland, as was mentioned to some detail today, rioters tearing down the fence surrounding the Hatfield Federal Courthouse through Molotov cocktails on Friday night. After uh, midnight, one federal officer took a direct hit from a commercial-grade firework, which was caught on video. Another was hit with a mortar firework. A third struck in the head with a mortar firework. And uh, these are just the people uh, peacefully exercising their constitutional rights, according to Jerry Nadler. Okay. In Louisville, Kentucky, black militia that calls itself the Not-Effing-Around Coalition lived down to its name when a member discharged a gun accidentally striking three of his comrades, thankfully non-life-threatening injuries. In Oakland, California, rioters set fires downtown Saturday night, including at the Alameda County Superior Courthouse. New York City, demonstrators to face police fans with spray paint, tried to smash their windows. You had a drive-by shooting that killed, uh, in which two teens were killed in New York City that was captured on video. You've got uh, a black Trump supporter who was murdered in Milwaukee, known Trump supporter, Local police investigating a possible political motive calls for the federal government to intercede there in that investigation of that murder. You got an armed Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter protester that was killed in Austin, Garrett Foster, Austin, Texas, after allegedly brandishing his AK-47 in front of a driver who was driver vehicle who was armed, who shot back. You had again, we discussed that yesterday. We discussed yesterday Seattle police sending a letter to businesses saying Per the city's a new ordinance, 
We Can't Protect You. You're on your own. You've got uh, Seattle radio talk show host uh, mugged by the reality of the the, the violence and the anarchy in Seattle saying uh, after criticizing the Trump administration and the response, I feel like I need to buy a firearm because clearly this is going to keep happening. Yeah, no kidding. That's what Police Chief Carmen Bessa said. You've got uh, a uh, arcade in Memphis that was destroyed. You've got rioting in New Jersey in the hundreds of people. Local officials are allowing this disorder to occur, opines the Wall Street Journal editorial board. And the more it is indulged, the worse it is likely to get. A.G. Barr doesn't want to indulge it. And the Democrat socialists do. There's your choice, America. Vote November 3rd. This is Dan Fox. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the show. Moving from uh, A.G. Barr's testimony to uh, Mike Rowe's letter bag. Uh, Mike Rowe, you know, Mike Rowe, Dirty Jobs and uh, uh, other discovery shows. One of my favorite shows, uh, Deadliest Catch, he narrated, of course. He uh, occasionally will uh, post a letter he receives and his response to it on a salient topic on his Facebook page. And he did on the matter of COVID-19, the letter he received from uh, a woman named Darlene Gabin. Mike, in a recent post, you said you've been to Tennessee and Georgia giving speeches and filming your new show. Before that, you were on the road shooting for dirty jobs. Is it really so important to film a television show in the midst of a pandemic? Is it responsible of you to encourage this kind of behavior when infection rates are spiking? Don't you watch the news? More and more cases every day. Aren't you concerned? He uh, responded, hi, Darlene. Of course, I'm concerned. I'm just not petrified. He refers to uh, one of the experts we've had on this show and uh, a favorite of uh, Meet the Press, Dr. Michael Osterholm from the University of Minnesota, a director of infectious disease research and policy uh, there. And some of the the projection he made uh, early which was a strong possibility of 100 million cases and uh, 480,000 fatalities, even if we successfully flatten the curve. Now, of course, we're nowhere near those numbers now, but that's sort of a secondary point. Mike Rowe goes on to explain, for the last three months, I've been operating from the assumption that this is a year-round virus that's eventually going to infect 100 million people and kill roughly half of 1% of those infected. I've accepted those numbers. Unfortunately, millions of others have not. Many people have no sense of where this is at, and I understand why. They've been betrayed by a hysterical media that insists on covering each new reported case as if it were the first case. Every headline totally drips with dread as the next doomed hotspot approaches the next grim milestone. And so for a lot of people, every day is Groundhog, Groundhog's Day. They're paralyzed by the rising numbers because they, numbers have no context. They don't know where it will end. I'm persuaded that Dr. Osterholm is right. He might be wrong. Frankly, I hope he is. But either way, he's presented us with a set of projections based on a logical analysis and accepting those projections has allowed me to move past denial, anger, bargaining and depression, the uh, four stages, and get on with my life with a better understanding of what the risks really are. Fact is, we the people can accept almost anything if we're given the facts and enough time to get uh, to uh, evaluate the risk and to make our own decisions. So don't misunderstand, I'm not ignoring COVID or downplaying COVID or pretending the risks at hand aren't real, nor am I comparing COVID cases to other causes of death. Uh, Some simply comparing fear of each to the other 
and fear that always accompanies uncertainty. Uh, and so that's sort of the rational approach. That's the common sense American who outside of COVID-19 has lived his or her life based on what is most likely to happen rather than what the worst case scenario is. Cause the worst case scenario, you would never do anything. You would be paralyzed by fear as many are, but Mike Rowe has moved past that and uh, America would be a better place. And we'd probably be more effective at dealing with the virus. If uh, a lot of other people would do the same. This is Dan Fox. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danprofshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Prof Show. Good op-ed in uh, the Star Tribune from uh, Catherine Kirsten. She's a senior policy fellow at the Center for the American Experiment about the uh, new religion in America. Something is profoundly amiss and the frenzied movement that has American in its grip, the movement elevates passion over reason and dogma over data. It uh, contemptuously rejects and attempts to silence, calls for objective analysis as self-evidently racist. It's the new American secular religion. For all its claims of inclusivity, the new faith is deeply intolerant, and uh, the comparison is made to the Puritan era, where the Puritans divided humans into the saved and the damned, the saints and the sinners, the woke faithful do the same, classifying people as either oppressors or victims. And uh, that extends even to uh, seemingly intranecine warfare, as is the case with uh, liberal Jewish leaders accusing other Jewish leaders of being anti-Semitic or covering up anti-Semitism by criticizing anti-Semitism. I I know it's a bit of a mind-bender, but that's what's going on right now, for example, real-world example, to provide some concreteness to it with Morton Klein, who's the national president of the Zionist Organization of America, uh, and Rick Jacobs, who is uh, the uh, head of the Union of Reform Judaism, Rick Jacobs and other Jewish leaders calling out Morton Klein, president of the Zionist Organization of America, for pointing out some sort of incontrovertible facts, the same way John Cass did about George Soros, and uh, is being accused of anti-Semitism by the same sort of Marxist mobsters. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by the aforesaid Morton Klein, national president of the Zionist Organization of America. Mr. Klein, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Great to be with you. And we have a situation uh, where um, politics is the new religion, as we've talked about, uh, Marxist politics, really. And so when you have... uh, Utterances from certain anti-Semites like uh, Louis Farrakhan or certain politicians, Ilhan Omar, that is supposed to be ignored. Uh, Black Lives Matter, that is supposed to be ignored. And uh, to point it out is to be anti-Semitic, even if you're Jewish, as turns out to be the case in your case, right? Well, it's right. Remarkable. I wrote some articles because of the new visibility of the Black Lives Matter group, not the cause of racial justice that everyone uh, supports and agrees to, but the groups has become very visible, credible, and legitimate. I looked into their platform. The platform, I wrote, 
simply what they write. They say Israel is a genocidal state wanting to kill all the Arabs, which is amazing. There were 200,000 Arabs in Israel in 1948. Today, there are 2 million. It's a hell of a genocide program. It's a reverse genocide. <laughs> they say that Israel is an apartheid state, even though 15% of the parliament in Israel are Arabs. They support boycotting Israel. They say Israel stole the Palestinian land, that uh, Zionism is white supremacy. And on America, they want to end the U.S. military, end capitalism. They're communists. They want reparations to Libya and Iraq. We should give Libya and Iraq terrorist regimes money. They want to end the nuclear family. And they want children to choose their own gender. A horrific platform. When I wrote about this, highlighting the anti-Semitism, Jewish leaders, 16 of them, called me a racist because I simply exposed the racism of Black Lives Matter. It's just remarkable. And a number of them demanded that I be, ZOA be thrown out of the umbrella group of Jewish organizations that ZOA co-founded. Yeah, and... and, and Daniel Greenfield, writing in Front Page magazine, uh, summed it up this way. The, the fundamental problem that Morton Klein was getting at, Jewish lives don't matter to the Union of Reform Judaism, not in Israel and not in America. The only thing that matters is its left-wing politics. And the fact that in getting to that point makes them uncomfortable. That's a, a revealing event that they don't want revealed, and so they have to attack the revealer. These Jewish leaders are scared to death of these black organizations because they see the violence and the terrorism. They see that Jewish stores have been targeted in Los Angeles. Jewish institutions and synagogues have been harmed physically uh, with graffiti such as death to Jews, F Israel, all over them. They're afraid. They feel that by appeasing these black radicals, Appeasing. They will be protected. This is really out of fear. And that's why they feel if they attack me for attacking Black Lives Matter organization, that will make them more secure. This is really pathetic fear, uh, 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 and they're ignoring their mission, which is to protect uh, Jews uh, and Jewish institutions by calling out these anti-Semites. And by the way, they have refused to call out Ilan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, AOC, these radical anti-Semitic, anti-American members of Congress. They've even praised them. Hayas, one of the organizations, has praised uh, Linda Sarsour, an anti-Semite, and demanded that people stop criticizing her. They've had receptions for Ilan Omar. This is the group Hayas. And, uh, and the ADL has said Ilan Omar is a woman uh, who is uh, working for a more just world as opposed to calling out her anti-Semitism. It is really frightening that the Jewish leaders have really uh, ignored their mission and is simply uh, doing what is politically correct and what, what they feel will protect them by appeasing uh, Jew haters. And by the way, these Jew haters don't ever forget, they're also America haters. They, these, these are communists who want to change America. Omar only last week said we, she wants to change the political system and the economic system of America. Why? It's wonderful. America's an incredible land of opportunity, uh, and yet few, few journalists, few Jewish leaders, and few politicians are calling out these anti-American, anti-Semitic uh, 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 communists, where in the rallies in the last two weeks are screaming, death to America, death to Israel. This is not Iran. Caroline Glick, um, writing in uh, uh, the Jerusalem Post, I think actually the piece was in uh, Israel National News, IsraelNationalNews.com. Very good piece. I tweeted it out. She uh, gets to the point that you're making. You either have silence in the face of rank anti-Semitism, rank hatred. She goes through the Black Lives Matter charter just as you were going through. Uh, or you have uh, Jewish organizations uh, attacking those who are just detailing what we see happening, and it's very Orwellian in nature. This is sort of a never trust your own eyes, believe what you're told 
political whitewashing that's going on and it's generating silence or actual acquiescence, as you said, appeasement of the mob based on their conduct, not based on their identity. And it's really a chilling development. What is your organization doing? What are those who are willing to stand up, stand up like you and Caroline Glick? What is what are your next steps? I've been meeting with Jewish leaders, pleading with them to call these people out. They still are very reluctant. They're afraid. I continue to write articles attacking them. In fact, only yesterday I had a two-hour conversation with uh, Ice Cube. And and so how did that go? And I uh, I asked them to publicly condemn the uh, uh, the anti-Semitism among blacks and other entertainers to condemn anti-Semitism. And he tweeted out that uh, uh, Abdul Jabbar, the basketball star, uh, has every right to condemn. Uh, these anti-Semitic athletes, he tweeted it out. He says, I hate anti-Semitism. He tweeted it out. <laughs> so I was very pleased that uh, Ice Cube has now uh, publicly stated that this is intolerable, this anti-Semitism, because uh, it will ultimately affect or, uh, infect all people. It doesn't end with the Jews. So I was very pleased that, uh, uh, that Ice Cube has not only called these people out, but he's uh, given me his cell number. He said, we have to stay in touch. We have to remain allies and fight, uh, uh, you know, hatred against all people, Jews, blacks, and, and whoever. Well, that's encouraging. That's encouraging. So, so that's, that's your conversation with Ice Cube. That's, this is very interesting. And your conversation with Jewish leaders who you're imploring to, you know, say what they know to be true, what do they say when you say, come on, guys and gals, we have to stand for the truth here? They say... This is what they said. These are major leaders of the conservative Jewish movement, reformed Jewish movement, Jewish women's groups, have uh, uh, said to me, this is not a time to be discussing anti-Semitism. This is a time to only be emphasizing the problems that blacks are having in America. And I said, how can you be supporting Black Lives Matter, the group, uh, if they're Jew haters? In other words, if David Duke would say some positive things about something, I'm not interested. He's a hater. We should not give a damn about what Black Lives Matter says as long as they're haters of whites, Jews, and America. Uh, so the answer I simply get is don't discuss anti-Semitism now. Concentrate on, on, the, on uh, uh, racism against black people. And this is simply words of fear. They're really afraid to attack uh, uh, black anti-Semites. And so right now, there's been no movement in the Jewish organizational world in condemning these people. By the way, the leaders walk around with PFLP shirts. PFLP is a major terrorist group. They walk around with the shirts saying PFLP on it. It's just astonishing. And yet there's been silence in the Jewish world and silence among politicians and among the journalists. Where is the media? Where's the editorial writers? They're nowhere to be found. It's it's really frightening. We're, We're mainstreaming hatred. Uh, against Jews and others by being silent when it comes to these uh, very serious issues that America's facing. It's very sad, and we appreciate that you're standing up and fighting the fight and enduring the calumny uh, by so doing. Morton Klein, National President of the Zionist Organization of America. Mr. Klein, thank you for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. If your audience goes to ZOA.org, you can learn more about the things you and I have been discussing. Thank you, Mr. Klein. Thank you. Show.com. Welcome back. Well, after our discussion with uh, Mort Klein, uh, he, I 
Unfortunately, I have to report that uh, Mr. Klein is not the only one being targeted with calumny, with phony charges of anti-Semitism. So is a good friend of the show. You've heard him on this program before, Chicago Tribune columnist John Cass. Uh, John Cass has been the uh, page two columnist in the Chicago Tribune for more than two decades after taking over from Pulitzer Prize winning columnist Mike Royko. He's been with the Tribune nearly 40 years, says Cass. This week it was announced by the uh, editor-in-chief that uh, Cass would no longer be the page two columnist. And uh, frankly, the Tribune is soon to be no longer in print format, so page two perhaps will mean a little bit less, but still placement in the paper. Uh, Cass is not fired, but he is moved. And the uh, editor-in-chief of the Chicago Tribune argued in defense of the move that uh, this uh, speaks to our need to be transparent with readers about what we do. This will help us maintain the credibility of our news coverage with our online audience, our print readers and communities amid what is, by all accounts, a raw and hyperpartisan political environment. Well, nothing as raw and hyperpartisan as what happens in the Chicago Tribune newsroom with the uh, Chicago Tribune Guild or really Chicago Tribune Marxist Guild. That's what it is. They uh, recently launched an attack on Cass for writing a piece that included mentioning George Soros and the millions of dollars that George Soros spends through his various organizations to support left wing social justice warriors as county and district prosecutors like, say, Kim Fox, the Cook County State's attorney of Jesse Smollett fame infamy as well as Krasner in Philadelphia, Bowden in San Francisco, and others. That's what Soros does. This is not um, in controversy. This is a statement of fact. It's a recitation of the record. It has been reported on by the Washington Post and the New York Times. It's contained in FEC filings of Soros-backed organizations. This is not in controversy. It's not in controversy that a Soros-backed super PAC provided more than half a million dollars to Kim Fox in her uh, first campaign for Cook County State's attorney four years ago, for example. Not a controversy. But when you're a Marxist guild looking to stamp out dissent, you uh, take whatever opportunity presents itself to fashion a something out of a nothing. And so they argued that even invoking the name George Cass, not this isn't the argument they made, but they argued invoking the name George Soros was promoting anti-Semitic tropes calling on Cass to, quote, apologize for his indefensible invocation of Soros tropes, unquote. There was no trope. George Soros's Judaism, the fact that he's a Jewish person, not mentioned in the column. It was his backing of leftist prosecutors who advance a non-prosecution culture in big cities that is in part exacerbating the spike in violence in big cities that we're seeing in New York, in Chicago, in Kansas City and other places. That's the point of Cass's column. So uh, no apology was forthcoming, nor should one be. But that doesn't mean that Cass isn't being targeted for elimination from the Chicago Tribune. And he's about the last conservative columnist in Chicago media. It's stamping out dissent. No cognitive dissonance allowed. And the idea, by the way, that uh, moving him around within the paper somehow enhances the credibility of the uh, news product. Well, uh, that's a there's a sort of implicit admission there that the credibility of the news product needs enhancing. And it certainly does, because while John Cass is a transparent columnist, he's an opinion writer. You've got a bunch of reporters in that uh, newsroom, modern day Robespierre's they are that uh, 
write news stories that are actually news stories that are actually opinions masquerading as news stories. Of course, there was a story several weeks ago after actually this is gosh, this is a couple months ago. Now, um, the reopen, there was a reopen rally in Chicago and in a story about a suburban fresh market opening, the news writer managed to shoehorn in a reference to Nazi sympathizers rallying downtown to reopen the state during its lockdown. Completely unrelated. Just slam it in there. That's what you get with the Chicago Tribune, like a lot of major dailies, which is why, oh, by the way, according to circulation, public circulation, the Chicago Tribune has gone from 438,000 print subscribers less than three years ago, September 2017, to 238,000 today. Almost a halving of their print subscription base. That is by but by far the largest decline in circulation of any major daily in the country. And with this uh, treatment of caste, it's going to go down and give you a sense of the identitarian politics that's taken hold in Chicago, as it has in so many other places. But this is a real telling illustration. The uh, local hack leftist who is the sort of sort of the media critic that all the you know self-involved navel-gazing media types read, this guy named Robert Feeder. This is how he characterized the announcement of Cass's uh, removal from page two of the Tribune, quoting after 23 years as the Chicago Tribune's white male conservative standard bearer, John Cass is about to lose his coveted spot on page two and so on and so forth. 23 years as Chicago Tribune's white male conservative standard bearer. You see, um, that's all John Cass is. It's just his and that's all all of us are. We're just our race and our gender. That's it. Nothing more. That's the basis of all things in Chicago, your race and gender, because it is on those bases that you claim entitlement to something, that you claim a, a right to something else, that you are conferred status or the lack thereof. It's a remarkable and telling statement that, co- that just that one phrase in the coverage of this moment. And of course, the Chicago Teachers Union, the Maduro lovers and Chavez lovers that they are, uh, weighed in saying, yeah, it would be better to give it to the column, the column space, to someone more deserving than John Cass. Sure. Yeah. Which uh, Maduroista do you have in mind, Chicago Teachers Union? This is what's happening in uh, all in major cities around the country with the media the media in full, full purge mode. No different than different formats taking, but no different than those on the streets seeking to erase American history or rewrite is that something as it never was. Another version of the same thing. Um, so again, and this is a message to everyone else in media it was interesting earlier in the show. We talked to James Pogue, who characterized himself as a liberal, a couple of pieces he wrote for Harper's magazine. And he talked about how fearful he is. I think it was almost an excited utterance. Fearful he is that the way you cover things like protests, uh, or even violence, you have to be so fearful about the language you're using. Why? Because if you're not careful, those Robespierre's, whether in the newsroom or the street, will come for you. And they're trying to take out John Cass, one of our nation's 
more thoughtful columnist who actually lives the coda, I think, should be part of the journalist's creda, which is from uh, Finley Peter Dunn, famed Chicago journalist, afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. That's what John Cass does in this column. And ironically, those Jacobins in his paper's newsroom do the exact opposite. Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. Appreciate you tuning in. And, uh, you know, for all the uh, attention that's paid to uh, dissension in the ranks of uh, Republican Party, disagreements over what to include in the COVID relief package, uh, the never Trumpers that still persist and are celebrated by the media. Not everything is copacetic, seamless. Everybody's oars being rowed in the same direction over in uh, Camp Biden either. Nina Turner, campaign co-chair for Bernie Sanders, quoted in The Atlantic saying that Sanders voters face a tough decision eating blank voting for Joe Biden on Election Day. It's like saying to somebody, you have a bowl of blank S word in front of you and all you've got to do is eat half of it instead of eating the whole thing. It's still blank. That's not exactly uh, the kind of quote uh, you would see featured in a Biden commercial. I don't think if that's where Bernie Sanders voters are, if that's where some of the Robespierre's and the Democrat Socialist Party are then Joe Biden may still have that enthusiasm slash turnout problem that Hillary Clinton had that uh, he seems to have, according to some of the polling, even as he uh, has uh, a bit of a lead, according to RCP polling averages uh, overall, but more importantly, in some of the battleground states, although a very narrow one for as bad a month as President Trump has had. For more on this topic and a few others, please be joined again by John Gabriel, Editor-in-Chief at Ricochet.com, contributor to azcentral.com as well. John, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Oh, you bet. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, there seems to be, uh, you know, almost uh, a uh, spiking of the football. The the, the overreaction or overexuberance of the leftist press in terms of Joe Biden's poll numbers sort of mirrors the, uh, I think, the overexuberance of Trump supporters when it comes to the debates and predicting Joe Biden will be a babbling idiot in the debates rather than trying to uh, uh, control expectations. Um, and uh, now you see some op-eds coming out, like uh, the uh, one in The Atlantic that followed uh, this, uh, or that uh, in which this quote was contained from this former Biden co- campaign co-chairman, which uh, is entitled, Don't Count Trump Out, and, cre- and talks about a scenario in which Trump could still win. Uh, the controlling expectations game, who's doing a worse job? Boy, um, it, it's very difficult because it seems like both sides are uh, handling this very poorly. Usually in these situations, you do try to manage expectations. You go out there and say, wow, my opponent is really good at debating, and boy, if I can just uh, keep tied with him, I'll, I'll be the winner. And instead, it's um, especially on the Trump side, he's just like basically saying Biden has no chance in the debates. 
And uh, on the other side, too, the press just will give Trump no credit, even though he's the sitting president, because they gave him no credit. So it seems like both sides are raising expectations too much. Biden's strategy, I don't know how much longer he can keep this out because he's just, you know, hiding in the basement nonstop. And you can't do that till November. Uh, We saw that, you know, one of the first elections I actually remember was the uh, Carter versus Reagan. And that's what Carter did. He just kind of hid in the White House, called it the Rose Garden strategy. It didn't do anything. And it's kind of like the prevent defense in football. You've got to be playing to win all the time or you're going to end up losing this thing. So Anybody who says the election is over is crazy, especially and it, <laughs> looking at the news in 2020. It's it's just right. been nonstop, you know, changes every week, it seems like. And and you, I'm sure you hear the same. A lot of people saying, you know, is Biden, is Biden going to get out of the debate? So are they going to figure a way to get him out of the debate? Or as Tom Friedman offered to get him some help on stage with fact checkers to uh, to uh, buttress him against Trump on stage? I just don't see any way, especially after already committing to it. But even if he hadn't committed, there's just no way to run for president of the United States and not stand on the same stage as the president. If you want that office, the American people want to see the candidates perform mano a mano. There's just there's no getting out of this for Biden, do you think, is there? Yeah, I, I completely agree, because at, this, at that point, it's bad enough that he's hiding in his basement now. But, you know, and won't have a, you know, in an in-person convention but if you try to duck the debates, that is, if anything, as a Norman standard of the television era, it's these public debates where you have it out. And for him to say, and his, especially his supporters, to say that, well, Trump is incompetent, there's no way he can leave this country, but you're afraid to debate him. <laughs> that's, that's not a ringing endorsement of your skills, to say the least. Yeah, it's a sort of a tough sell, uh, right? If on the right. one hand he's this, but you can't go uh, up against him and, and hold your own. That's What does that say about you? It's a, it's a good point. When we come back with John Gabriel, I want to uh, get to this piece that uh, you wrote for the Arizona Republic about uh, America's fundamental problem. What is that fundamental problem that we have? Uh, we'll get John Gabriel's answer. John Gabriel, editor-in-chief at ricochet.com. Back with more right after this. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back we're speaking with john gabriel editor-in-chief at ricochet.com contributor to uh, arizona republic azcentral.com as well uh john um America's fundamental problem, something we've forgotten to how to do, which is what? Mind our own business. Um, it's kind of a constant thread um, when you look at, especially anytime you dip into social media, whether, you know, I need to do it for work, but just to keep up with old friends and things like that. It's just this constant, unrelenting stream of people posting videos. Look what this person did. They said this word. This person cut me off in traffic, so I'm going to follow them home and confront them. And and then you, of course, have the mask, whether look at this jerk not wearing a mask or look at this jerk wearing a mask or yelling at me to put mine on. I, I think a lot of it just comes down to we as a people are just up at each other's business 24-7, and we're forgetting what 
every single one of our moms taught us, mind your own business. Why don't you fix yourself instead of worrying about what this other person did? And I, I just think these constant public shaming rituals that you see several a day, it seems like at this point, um, it, it's just uh, corroding our entire civil society. Well, and I, and I tell you, this has uh, somewhat been tamped down as the uh, pandemic uh, has proceeded. You can only keep track of so many aspects of this simultaneously, I suppose. But the whole snitch culture and these hotlines that were set up uh, and they, they, they persist this day. I've got a friend who's got a restaurant in Chicago and, uh, you know, some uh, restaurant uh, patron uh, called a hotline to dispatch uh, city commissars because some uh, patrons weren't social distancing uh, properly at his restaurant, which wasn't even true. But just the fact that somebody can make a call and then commissars are dispatched, they have to investigate, they have to write it up the issue, they have to get all of his licensure and go through the whole thing based on somebody snitching. Uh, you know, that that whole snitch culture, that whole lives of others culture um, you know, that's something that is going to persist. And, and I, it seems to me grow because of all of the moral panics going in every which direction. Yeah. And who knows what the moral panic will be next month. They seem to be <laughs> switching and flipping on a dime pretty much. And in my article, uh, I just kind of say as well, a lot of these people who appear on video, look at this crazy guy doing this. Well, uh, there's a lot of situations out there where people are struggling with mental illness, especially after being locked up for several months, and maybe instead of judging our neighbors for having a bad moment or just acting erratically, we should just kind of calm down and say, okay, what can I do to improve myself instead of pointing at this other person? It's very easy to uh, point at everyone around you as somehow failing the social compact, but there, if all of us just minded our own business a little bit, I, I, I think society would be much healthier. Yeah, you know, uh, it's an observation that um, uh, Anthony Esselin made in, in a piece some time ago that, you know, the, the the even-handed person, the charitable human being, which we all, I think, aspire to be, doesn't go around looking for opportunities to jackpot his neighbor for no reason. And right. and, and that's that's sort of what's happening, isn't it? Yeah, it, it really is. Um, it, it's kind of, you know, back in the old days, would it be probably the 1990s, you had the Springer show where people would get, you know, they'd get these kind of oddball guests and the crowd would hoot and holler at them. And it was People were viewing it, and it got good ratings because people like to make themselves feel better by making by pointing out the other. Well, they're even worse than I am. You know, I might be sitting around eating Doritos, uh, drinking Mountain Dew, watching Jerry Springer in the middle of the day, but at least I'm not that person. And I, I just think it's self-destructive, and it's kind of outside of politics too, because you see this on all sides, and you see this a lot from the apolitical, you know, the kids on TikTok or <laughs> wherever it might be, people who aren't engaged in the political culture at all, if they would spend half the time they do judging others, focusing on themselves in whatever way, I, I think they would be better off, everyone would be better off, and uh, those poor people who, in a lot of cases, are probably just having one bad moment in a long week, uh, they're good activities aren't being filmed or recorded. Right. So just give each other a break. We're all kind of messed up. Just give each other a break. And I think uh, society in general will be better off for it. And, and you know, and I, it seems to me that because of what, what uh, you're describing, you get into situations where people just can't or refuse to think critically. You know, for all of the talk of science and data and the experts during the pandemic, what do we find? I mentioned this earlier in our program. Ipsos uh, poll 
80 percent of Democrats don't think schools should reopen. Eighty percent of Republicans do think schools should reopen. Right. Uh, and, and, and frankly, you know, on the merits, the science is overwhelming, as is the real world experience of all sorts of Western nations about school reopenings. But that's um, sort of a secondary point to just this 80 percent one way and 80 percent the other. How are you having a conversation about the same information? Right. And that's why you'll have what I get anytime I've, I've written as well about the need to reopen schools. And I immediately get grandma killer. Okay, yeah, right. Yeah, right. That's reasonable. Slow down. Why don't we, does it, yeah, why don't we actually discuss this situation? And there's a lot of things going on. And especially too, um, kind of the nature, especially of social media, is everything gets reduced to bumper sticker slogans like grandma killer or whatever it might be. Either this is all a hoax or this is the worst uh, health crisis and we need to ignore everyone else. I've had friends who had to delay cancer screenings, which ended up being cancer, you know, three months later when they could actually get to an oncologist. And it's like there's a lot of moving parts here. And yes, if we want to only focus on coronavirus and not, you know, the separation that kids are experiencing, not never being able to see their friends or go outside, uh, there's a, there are many, many issues going on, the economic issues, of course, as well. And yeah, if we only wanted to focus on stamping out coronavirus, we'd just lock ourselves up in cellophane for the next three years, and yeah, it would be taken care of. Of course, there'd be nothing to return to once we emerge from our cocoons. Well, uh, on an optimistic note, uh, you write over at ricochet.com about 2020 at present. Uh, don't worry, the worst is yet to come. So uh, um, yeah, that's exciting to look forward to that. Right, right. Um, yeah, I'm of Finnish extraction. I'm originally from north of you guys up in the UP of uh, Michigan there uh, with a bunch of uh, Finns, and we are not known for cheery disposition. <laughs> and uh, this was actually my form of a pep talk saying, basically, if you set standards really, really low, when things turned out kind of cruddy, hey, that was pretty good. I thought, I thought it'd be far worse than that. I just wanted everybody to hold on to their hats because 2020 has been absolutely crazy, but we're not even really in election season yet. So it's going to be a wild ride this year. So just uh, take some time out, uh, relax, read a book, uh, have a nice, nice hot cup of coffee, and enjoy the ride because it's going to be a little, a little nuts. John Gabriel, editor-in-chief at Ricochet.com, contributor to azcentral.com as well. John, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. you'll know this is the dan prof show welcome back to the show we mentioned uh, in passing that olivia de Havilland had passed away over the weekend on sunday at the uh, ripe old age of 104 great life led great actress best Olivia de Havilland movie I think I mentioned was The Heiress, and that remains a day later. But something I didn't know about her, uh, brought to us by uh, this uh, contribution in the Wall Street Journal from Ronald Radish, who's an author of uh, a book called Red Star Over Hollywood that uh, discusses uh, Hollywood's uh, long-standing romance with uh, their left, and of course, during the Cold War with communists, and dating back to post-World War II. And uh, Olivia de Havilland's a courage when courage was required to be unpopular bubble like Hollywood, even though she was liberal. She was an anti-communist, not on board with Stalinism, which separated her from some of her colleagues in Hollywood. And so uh, the idea of being unpopular within your social circle, standing for what is right, 
when it's difficult. Boy, that couldn't be a more timely message, could it? De Havilland, Mr. Rodesh tells us, was shocked when she heard communist screenwriter John Howard Lawson tell a uh, U.S. House committee that the U.S. was starting to, quote, strangle democracy everywhere. In June 46, she accepted an invitation to speak at a uh, committee rally. This, I'm, I'm sorry, this was um, not Congressional Committee, Hollywood Independent Citizens Committee for the Arts, Sciences, and Professions, bringing together liberals and communists as World War II was ending. That's the committee in question. She accepted this uh, invitation from to, to speak at a committee rally, this Hollywood committee in Seattle. She received a draft of proposed remarks written by one Dalton Trumbo, recently uh, the subject of a popular film, which um, sort of rewrites his dalliance with communism. Of course it does. That's what Hollywood's in the business of doing. Trumbo wanted her to condemn the drive of certain interests toward a war against the Soviet Union. His text condemning Truman for union busting, anti-Semitism, and racial bigotry. What uh, Olivia de Havilland did instead was, without informing Trumbo or anyone else, she read to the rally, not Trumbo's prepared words, but her own, written with the help of James Roosevelt, FDR's anti-communist son, who was also one of the committee's leaders. She um, told a captive audience, a coalition of liberal and progressive forces supported the New Deal, but in this new era, reactionary forces had driven a wedge in the liberal coalition that were trying to make it appear the great liberal movement is controlled by those who are more interested in taking orders from Moscow and following the party line than they are in making democracy work, quoting de Havilland. The only answer was for liberals to distance themselves from Stalin and his followers, the American communists. We believe in democracy, she told the crowd, and not in communism. De Havilland's speech, Trump, Trumbo, Dalton Trumbo wrote her in an angry letter, was nothing but a denunciation of communism and an exercise in red baiting. Well, with the support of another actor who belonged to that same Hollywood Citizens Committee named Ronald Reagan, ring a bell? James Roosevelt and De Havilland proposed that members make a statement strongly opposing communism. And um, that's what they did. Uh, she told uh, Roosevelt that uh, she had decided to smoke out the communists and openly oppose them. James Roosevelt publicly resigned from that Hollywood Citizens Committee in 1946, and it soon was apparent that the committee's only remaining members were the communists who had created it. De Havilland, Roosevelt, Reagan obviously went on to make their own statements separated from that committee. So again, uh, a, a wonderful example she provided in addition to wonderful films that Olivia de Havilland provided. Thank you for joining us on another installment of the program. Please join us again for the Dan Prof Show tomorrow. This is the Dan Prof Show.